I'm wondering if, uh, like me, you've ever been waiting for anything, you know? Uh, but in particular, I'm thinking of waiting for an email or uh, something on a, a web page that you keep refreshing, you know? In, in my app on my phone, if I'm waiting for an email, you know, maybe I went to a web page and I had to get one of those codes and then go put it back in that web page so they know that I'm really who I am or I at least hacked the right email account or whatever. Um, but you're waiting and, and you, on my phone, if, if, if you're waiting for an email and you want it to refresh, you kind of pull down on the list. Do you have that in your phone, you know? And it kind of has that rubber band type feel where it stretches a little bit and then you let it go and it has the little spinny wheel for like an hour, no, just for like a second or two, right? And then it refreshes and it's still not an email there, right? You're still waiting and so you hit the email and it refreshes uh, and there's nothing new and you wait and you wait. Well, as we enter into Advent season again um, for another year, that's, that's our theme every Advent, is this idea of waiting, because we do look back on the first Advent, but we're also very aware, if we know anything about the world around us, if we pay any attention even to our own lives, that we're doing a lot of waiting, and that ultimately we need to find a hope beyond the short term, that we need a hope that can only be fulfilled waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's, that's our theme today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. In particular, we're going to look at uh, these two people, Simeon and Anna. And we're not going to look as deeply at this passage as we do in other situations. We might leave some questions unanswered. But we're looking at hope. And where these two dear old saints found hope after the birth of Jesus, in fact, Jesus, as the story begins, is probably about a month old, and Mary and Joseph have brought him to the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifices before the Lord. And so what we'll find here is hope as we look at God's Word together. Would you read with me, please? Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38, and we're going to skip a couple of verses in the middle. But please read with me, Luke 25, 2, 25 and following. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and his, this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord... You're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. 
And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And now I'll jump down to Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, the same moment the parents brought Jesus in, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Lord, please meet us here. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to the hope that you alone provide. And bring that hope to us through your word, with your spirit, that what is written on the pages of the book or on the pixels of our screens that hits our eardrums, sound waves coming through, Lord, let all of that work together with your spirit that we might be a people of hope, no matter what our circumstances and no matter what we're longing for and waiting for. Meet us here, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So that that image I have of uh, pulling down on my email app and refreshing the screen is, is a really good picture for hope and for the tension that I think we all experience as we live in this fallen and broken world where we're kind of as the as you, you pull down on that email, you know, on the app, and you get that tension, that rubber band feeling, and you just let it go, then it releases, and maybe your hopes are fulfilled, and, and maybe they're not. You know, as time passes in life, you find that, right? You're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and, and then the thing arrives, or the thing happens, or it doesn't happen, and you have some release some tension is relieved, but ultimately, you know, something else pops up. And we live our lives in this tension, in this place of longing and waiting and hoping and grieving and rejoicing and this whole mixture together where we wait and we wait, we scroll we refresh, we swipe, we look, we search, we shop, we talk, and we're looking for something, something encouraging, something interesting, something to bring hope. But we're broken people, and we're looking for those things very often in the wrong places, right? We're thirsty, and we start consuming salt water that just makes us thirsty, or we're hungry and we consume cotton candy that does nothing to fill us up, but maybe makes us go to sleep on a sugar crash. We're broken. We live in a broken world. And as we come to another Advent season, we need real hope. And I pray that that's what you find in this 
Advent season. And before we get too close to Christmas, this is, you know, the first Sunday of Advent. Usually we kind of emphasize the longing aspect, you know, O come, O come, Emmanuel, those kind of songs where we're longing and we're speaking and there's minor key songs, right? The dirges, as one of my elders in another church had called them. The sadness, this sorrow, this brokenness that should not bring us down ultimately, but should in fact show us where the real hope can be found. What would ultimately fulfill our longings? And the first thing though is, what is hope? And I would define hope this way, and it's not original with me. Uh, There's many definitions of hope, and I particularly like this, that hope is a choice to live with that tension where we're longing for things and we're not quite released, where we've swiped down but it hasn't quite refreshed. Hope is that choice to live in that tension, longing for a better future, longing for a better future, believing it will arrive. Believing that better future will arrive despite our present circumstances and our current situation. Hope is a choice to live with that tension. Bound up, waiting for, that is hope. And the question today that I want us to consider is how do you live with hope? How do you do that well? The first thing you need to know and the overarching thing is that the way to live with hope is to look back and see the Lord is always faithful. Look back and see the Lord is always faithful. The short version is this, that God's past faithfulness yields present hope for a better future. That we only begin to have hope for a better future that will last and a hope that will be fulfilled if we begin by looking back at God's faithfulness to get a hope in the present. That was true of Simeon and Anna that we read in our passage today. It's true for me and for you this Advent season and every Advent season to come until the Lord returns. So look back now with me, first of all, to how to live with hope. We see this with Simeon. In verses 25 through 33, how do you live with hope? You live with hope by waiting with faith. Keep showing up and trusting God. That's what waiting with faith is all about. We see that as uh, the description of Simeon here in our passage plays out. We read in verse 25, There was a man in Jerusalem, Luke 2.25, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation or the encouragement, the hope to come for Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This description describes Simeon as a devout man, as someone who is oriented towards God, that, that, you know, he's given God a good amount of his attention. He's devout. He's focused on the Lord primarily. But he's also described as righteous. And in the context here, that describes someone who who deals rightly with others. 
that Simeon is one who's focused on God and on others, that, that he is waiting with faith. In particular, it emphasizes that he's not only waiting with faith, but he's waiting in particular on God's promises. Look at verse 29. As he holds, Simeon holds the baby Jesus about a month old in his arms, he holds the baby Jesus. Verse 28, took him in his arms, blessed God, and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. You know, trusting the word of God, the promises of God, you're not going to wait with faith. You're not going to keep showing up and trusting God, you're not going to have hope unless you root it in the promises of God, in what God has said, believing that God speaks, first of all, right? Just the simple fact that God has spoken, particularly in his word, but not only believing that God speaks, but also that what God speaks is true and that he's going to keep his promises that he's faithful, no matter what the circumstances around appear to present to you, that God is faithful to his promises. And the thing with that is, though, if you've lived any amount of years, you begin to realize, if you've read the Bible at all, you begin to realize that that can take a lot of time to see God's promises fulfilled. And if we don't broaden our perspective beyond a very limited time, even our own lifespans, we're not going to have hope. We need to see the fuller picture that God does, in fact, keep his promises, but it takes a while. You know, every, uh, every year we do our lessons and carols service, and we've shifted that to Christmas Eve, and that's a Sunday night in, what, 10, 17, three weeks, 6 p.m. right here. And it is one of my favorite services because we, we not only get to focus on the Bible, we sing some familiar Christmas carols and we do the heartwarming uh, you know, candlelight and hopefully don't have any fires or things like that. Burn too many hands with candle wax, if you know what I mean, right? Like we have this wonderful service and we look at scripture passages and we have people read those passages in their own heart language beyond English. And one of the beautiful things I love about that is that we take a selection of scriptures that, that span history, that reveal God's promises played out through time. And we start with Genesis 3.15 usually, where God makes that first promise after Adam and Eve's sin. They've fallen away from God's plan for them and their own obedience. They disobey. And God, in the time of judgment, speaking to Satan, says, look, I promise that there's going to come a seed from this woman, from Eve, a child, a descendant of hers, who, yes, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That God from that moment promised that he would send a deliverer from Eve's descendants. God continued Genesis Chapter 12, the calling of Abraham out of a pagan land from Babylon, from Ur of the Chaldees. 
And God said, I'm promising you, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. People who bless you, I will bless. People who curse you, I will curse. And so Abraham believed God's promises and travels hundreds of miles across desert landscapes. God, God speaks to Abraham then a few years later and reiterates the promise and says, I'm going to make your descendants, Abram, as many as the stars of the sky. And you're going to have a son, you and your wife, even though you're like 90 years old. And she is too. You're going to have a child. And then it took what? Another 10 years for that part of the promise to happen. We've already now spanned hundreds of years of history and we're only at Abraham. You keep going from there and there's the Exodus we read about recently and looked at several times. God called his people, finally multiplied them and God then saved his people out of Egypt. How did he do that? In one fell swoop, bringing them out immediately? Boom, no. Plague after plague after plague after plague. We don't know how long that took, at least days, maybe weeks for them to finally be delivered from Egypt. And then the Egyptians come right out after them. And then they cross the Red Sea. And then they go to Mount Sinai. And God himself reveals his plan for them. It's his law to them. And, and they don't obey. And so then they spend decades wandering about in the wilderness until that generation dies off. And God raises up Joshua and leads them in the promised land. And they conquer it, but don't conquer it. They're there, but they're not there. They're doing what God wants and they're kind of not. And God eventually brings them a king. And the first king they choose, and he's not very good. Then God says, I'm going to give you a king after my own heart, David. And David is generally faithful. He has his moments and terrible sin here and there. He's characterized as a man after God's own heart, but he's not perfect. And, but he's not the man that God promised to crush Satan. He's, he's not even the one. God said, I'll give you a son who will sit on your throne forever and ever. Who will reign always and forever. And it wasn't Solomon, David's son. It wasn't Solomon's son, Rehoboam. In fact, Rehoboam in his foolishness divided the kingdom. And the kings in the north were terrible and got worse and worse and worse. The kings in the south were okay. But both the north and the south kingdoms eventually taken into exile, judged by God. And the prophets of those days, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all prophesied by God, the promises of God, that there would come a day when God would bring a new covenant, a new form of relationship with his people, that God would deliver them, bring them back from captivity, and set them free. Hundreds of years later, we read our passage today. Thousands of years of history pass. And God has only and always shown himself to be faithful, to keep his promises very often not in the ways we expect. Very often different from the, what, what we think he would do and much less what we would do. God's ways are very often very different. And these things take such time. And if you think about it, as Simeon is sitting or standing in the temple with this baby Jesus in his hands, right? Praising God for his faithfulness. Saying, how did he put it? 
Verse 29. You're releasing your bondservant according to your word. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at a baby. But he can see in that baby the promises of God so fully that he sees that this is God's salvation. This is God's plan. This is the one who will set us free. Even though it hasn't been realized yet, he has such confidence in the promises of God that he's showing up day by day, trusting that God is going to keep his promises, that that little baby guarantees to him that God will do the rest. And it's going to be years from that moment, decades Till Jesus is on the cross. And then it's centuries till you and I are here today. The same thing holds true though. That God's promises take time. Not, in the, not only in the big scope of history, but just even in your own life. You know, I get impatient waiting for the email to refresh, right? Or the website. Or jumping through hoops and having to put codes in that they text you or whatever. You know, that much less getting impatient for significant things like a cold or a flu or an illness or a surgery or pain or suffering or grief or a broken relationship or a desire for change or growth in someone that I love. And the thing that I need, the thing that you need is, is to remember God's promises, that He is faithful, that His timeline is so much bigger. His time frame is larger. His plans are larger than just you and me. And to put that all in perspective that we trust His promises keep showing up and that you will see God work eventually. But we live, we choose to live in that tension. Trusting that a better future is coming. And realizing it's probably going to take some time. So just this week, I've been waiting for different things, and I keep reminding myself, God, you're on it. Your plans will be fulfilled. Your, your promises are faithful. And whatever happens, what doesn't happen, you've got it. I'm going to trust you, Lord. And your promises. That's his call for us to believe that we're going to see him. And, and it becomes more clear, you know, as you look at not only how to wait with hope, but also why. Why you must wait with hope. And we see this with Anna in verses 36 through 38. Why? Wait with hope. Well, first of all, because God is shaping you in that waiting. God is shaping you in that waiting and shaping you, shaping me. Guess what? Takes time. The reason we wait is because it takes time for us to get shaped and molded and to grow. Anna, it says in verse 36, was advanced in years. The Greek text is a little ambiguous about her age. Uh, she's either 84 years old, which most English translations put it as, including our NASB, or she's been a widow for 84 years, and we don't know for sure how old she was, but probably at least 16 or something. So 
for that reason, that would make her like 100. We, we think probably more natural reading would be that she's 84. But either way, it says very explicitly she's advanced in years. And over time, what has happened with her? She has drawn closer to the Lord. She's drawn closer to the Lord. It says what? In verse 37, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. This doesn't necessarily mean that she literally never left. It could be that she was there all the time. So you would say she's always there like someone who's always at church, right? They're not literally there. She, maybe she was literally there. She's characterized as a prophetess, which is an unusual description. Uh, don't have time to dig into it, but that at least means she had some function with the Word of God. And that would make sense for her to be there among the priests at the temple. We don't know. It's conjecture as to where she lived and all that kind of thing. But wh whatever it means... She's consumed with the Lord, dependent upon the Lord, fulfilled by the Lord, focused on the Lord. That, that she, over decades of being a widow, has not drawn further back from the Lord, but drawn closer to the Lord. In fact, she's serving the Lord. And you know, why we wait is because God is shaping you and you're serving Him. right? God is shaping you, and, and you're called to serve Him. She's serving. That's explicitly said here. And the sense of that word usually is religious duties. And in fact, Luke says, what is she doing? She's serving with fastings and prayer. She's serving with fasting and prayer. She's advanced in years. We don't know her general health or anything like that. But she's serving. She's working. In fact, R.C. Sproul makes an interesting observation. He says it's interesting that Luke should describe her life of fasting and prayer as a life of service to God. Usually we think that service involves preaching or teaching or reaching out to the poor, the hungry, or the imprisoned. He goes on, all of which, of course, are forms of service and dedication to God. But this singular devotion of prayer and fasting can also be a ministry. Then Sproul in his commentary tells the story of a missionary who's retired from full-time ministry. He's now back in his home, but he's bedridden. He can barely move. He can't physically get around. He's stuck in his bed. And he works eight hours a day. And this is, he didn't have a laptop, you know, he wasn't Zoom calling and stuff. This is before all of that. He's working eight hours a day. What was he doing? Praying. This man, over his long lifetime, had drawn close to the Lord and recognized that he was called to serve the Lord, said that even though I'm stuck in my bed, I'm going to work praying like it's a full-time job, eight hours a day. Let me ask you something. Would you want him praying for you? I would. Sign me up. Eight hours a day, praying as his full-time job, serving the Lord. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I think this is a place where we can be challenged a little bit. You know, older folks, sometimes those who are advanced in years, you begin to think, you know, I really can't do the things I used to. I can't get around. Like, all I can do is pray. 
Now, there was a good old boy in our church in Tennessee uh, who used to say with a twinkle in his eye, Pastor, you know, it's gotten so bad, I think, I think all we can do is pray. And he, he would wink at me, and he would, because he knew that's ridiculous, right? All we can do is pray. We're going to have to pray. That's the first thing, right? What do we do without prayer? Are we actually doing what God wants? Is God in it if we haven't been praying? And what can't we do if we are living a life of prayer and lifting it up to the Lord? That's his calling for us. Our hope is in the Lord. And it's a small thing. It's a subtle thing, but it's super important for us to recognize that mindset can sneak in. And in fact, it undermines our hope. When we begin to think things like, all I can do is pray, instead of, we have to pray. We let in this little idea that it's more up to me, that I'm not actually serving if I'm not doing something tangible, if I'm not, you know, using my hands or interacting this way or doing that thing or going that place, that it doesn't count unless I'm doing those things. When in fact, we can be very busy we can be very active even in religious and churchy stuff and just totally lose sight of God and lose hope. I think this is one of the parts of what comes with, with burnout is that we're doing it in our own energy and we lose sight of God. And Anna here is a great witness for us that when we, f- we could fill our lives with busyness, even churchy stuff, and just have the, the hope sucked out of us because we're doing it in our own strength. And that temptation, that temptation to do things in our own strength, that temptation to forget God, that temptation is why God allows suffering in the world. Because that's who we are. That we are a people, every single human being, from Adam and Eve's first sin, we are all a people who will want to and pursue our own way. Who want to do it in our own strength. Who say, no, I can do it. Like a toddler to God. And God in His love for us says, that's not how I want it for you. That I made you to be dependent upon me. That in fact, it, it is not good for you to go your own way. It is not good for you to determine on your own what is right and wrong. That I have made a world with a structure. That I have made a world and I've made you in my image. And I've made you to do these things in relation to me. I've made you to love me, God says, and to love other people. And when you go your own way, when you go in your own strength, you're pursuing your own agenda and not the one I have for you. And it's going to burn you up. It's going to burn you out. It's going to suck the life and hope out of you. Anna suffered loss. Seven years into her marriage, it says, she was a widow to the age of 84. We don't know when she got married. 
say it's only 50 years, which is a very conservative, it's probably more like 60 years she's been a widow. And during that time of suffering, of, of, of loss, she's drawn near to the Lord. Don't hear me saying or minimizing grief and suffering. Don't, don't hear me saying, yeah, God just ordained you to lose that person. Just you know, suck it up. Get over it. You know, it's for your good. Like, yes, that's true. And it stinks. It hurts. Suffering is a real thing. We are to grieve. We are to account those losses and recognize them. It's wonderful that we have a, a widow and widower group. You know? And it's encouraging to me to hear that in the midst of the suffering, as they come together and, and share their grief and their sorrows, that they're, they're bearing one another's burdens and they're finding not the removal of grief, but in fact, hope is I think what's happening. That there is a hope you can experience in the midst of the grief. That is what the gospel calls us to. First Thessalonians 4.13. You know, don't be like the rest of the world that grieves without hope in the face of death. We have a hope. We have a God who has entered into this world to bring us hope. We, we have a God who... Who not only loves us enough to bring suffering and discomfort into our lives that we would continue to depend on Him, but a God who enters into that suffering, who knows that we will fail in our dependence upon Him, and so He takes it up for us. We have a God who experienced death itself for us, and a God who raises the dead. The death itself is not the end. That God has the victory even over that. That God himself has done what is necessary. And ultimately, that this God of new beginnings, this God of, of new life, this God is ultimately pointing in that direction in every circumstance that we grieve, in, in every unsatisfied longing, in every broken relationship, even death itself, that God is working in all those things not that you would dismiss the sorrow and the grief. That, not that you would no, not feel the pain. But that in fact, you would put your hope in God and choose to live with that tension. Now, as we come to the Lord's table in a little while after we sing a song, you know, the, the language of coming to communion is that you know, we would look back at the cross and we would look forward to the return of Christ that right now we might have hope. That we might now, as we take the cup and the bread, depend upon God. That we might profess with our hands the foolishness of the gospel. That we would believe that God has solved the problem for us and He will come and ultimately bring it to completion. But meanwhile, we're called to a hope. To a living hope. We're called to the living God. To the Christ who came in the flesh.
great David's greater son, to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, that we come to him. That's our hope. And so, we suffer loss even as God is shaping you and you're serving Him. Beyond that, we wait with faith, trusting in God's promises. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Give us the grace to trust Your promises, to to believe that You are faithful. Give us the perspective to see history played out in the pages of Your Word as we look from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve all the way through to what we've just read here in Luke of Your coming as a baby in the flesh, Lord Jesus even up to our own present lives and, and, and Your work in them, Lord, that we would even be here this day, that we would care about Your Word, that we would have any ounce of love and, and attention for You. But yet that's what You've given to us, Lord. You are faithful despite our circumstances, that You are good and will bring about Your promises without fail. Lord, give us the grace that we need to believe that Your past faithfulness is going to yield a, a hope for us today for a better future tomorrow, whenever tomorrow comes. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.